Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Luke. Today we start in chapter 18, and we're going to talk about bringing infants, youth, and friends to Jesus. Let's start with Luke chapter 18 and verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I love this passage because here Jesus is saying that he wants infants and children brought to him. And I emphasize infants. In verse 15, it's not just babies. There's a very specific Greek word that is designating an infant. Jesus wants the infants brought to him, for to such belong the kingdom of God. They're not just backseat members of the kingdom that kind of sneak in through the back door. No, they're premium members of the kingdom of God. And Jesus goes a step further and remember, the, the disciples are saying, uh-uh, we got to keep them back. You know, maybe uh, these children lack intellectual qualifications. They, they haven't reached the age of wisdom. They haven't gone through their full catechism class yet, or they haven't made a special decision in a revival uh, meeting like some of our evangelical friends would say, or some other hurdle. And, you know, very often... Some of our Protestant friends criticize the Catholic Church saying, you don't trust enough in the grace of God. Well, what's more trusting in the grace of God of bringing an infant, bringing that infant to Jesus? And what does that infant offer Jesus? Nothing. That's the point. He offers everything. And what better picture of the necessity of total dependence and faith in the grace of Jesus than an infant being brought to him and so often rebuked. Now, why should you be interested in this? Well, why, you know, and I know somebody said, well, why, why bother knowing this? Well, the early church understood this passage to include bringing children to Jesus for baptism. And let me tell you something. Baptism isn't just a nice thing, um, kind of a, a post-birth rite for a child, a family gathering and pictures. It's certainly all those things. But baptism is incredibly important. Jesus says, unless you are born again of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And if you learn some winsome ways to share the necessity and the importance of baptism, uh, you could be saving a niece, a nephew, uh, a friend's child for all eternity. This is, this is really high stakes. 
And really, you know, having a child really changes you and simply without getting into all the theological arguments, turn to Luke 18 and just talk about the story of parents with the natural desire to want to bring their children to Jesus and the disciples. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. We can't do this. Not yet. They got to be older. They have to do this. They have to do that. They have to be this. They have to be that. No, just bring them to Jesus. That's and, and baptism is the way we want to bring a child to Jesus. Now, I'm going to just share something with you for a moment that I'm guessing that about 98 to 99 percent of you have never heard before. Let me just preface this. In St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, he, he styles baptism using the words either circumcision or uncircumcision. In other words, you were uncircumcised before you were baptized, and then you were circumcised in heart. And he's using the Old Testament covenant rite for entrance into the kingdom. In the Old Covenant, this was baptism, and it was parents' responsibility to have their children circumcised if they were already in the kingdom their boys circumcised, I should say. So if you go to Exodus chapter 4 and verse 24, there's a verse I'm sure you've never heard a broadcast on before, but it, it, it has a, a striking message. In Exodus 4:24, it says this. Now, just to set it up, Moses is on the way back to Egypt after centuries of slavery in Egypt to deliver the children of Israel in the Exodus. This is the big event in the Old Testament, and yet we read this. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to kill him. You haven't heard a sermon on that. You haven't heard a broadcast on that. You haven't heard a teaching on that. You've never heard a comment on that, my guess. What's up? Well, you find immediately afterwards that Moses' wife took a flint knife and circumcised her son, and then, boom, next day they're on their way back into Egypt to deliver the children of Israel. You see, for a parent not to take the responsibility to give the sign of entrance into the covenant to their children, they became covenant breakers. This is very serious stuff. And I can remember writing a letter to a friend. We were good friends. We were in some pretty intense pro-life activity together, and he was of a Baptist orientation. And I shared this with him, not in a way to uh, pile drive him anyway, but show the seriousness that God took. And I'm just showing you a verse that's uh, kind of a background information that this is something to really pay heed to. This is the voice of Jesus speaking, bring the children to me. And Jesus's voice was echoed right down through the centuries of the church. Way back in AD 244, this isn't too long after the apostles died, the church father Origen wrote a commentary on Romans in which he said the following, quote, the church has received the tradition from the apostles to give baptism even to little children. And then St. Cyprian, who died just a little bit after this commentary was written, 
said it was lawful to baptize children by the second or third day after their birth, that an infant should not be prevented from baptism. And that was in the year 200s. Let's fast forward to the Catechism of the Catholic Church today, section 1250. Born with a fallen nature and tainted by original sin, children, infants, that's my emphasis because that's the word in Luke 18, also have need for the new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. So we really want to pay heed to the voice of Jesus, to the church fathers, and what the church says today. This is a seamless chain of truth through the ages, a, a, a voice. And, uh, you know, I, I personally was baptized as a child and then uh, entered the Jesus movement in the uh, 1970s, and I was re-baptized in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, I can remember in seminary, I encountered some Protestant theologians who thought infant baptism was a genuine thing. And prior to this, I really respected these theologians. And prior to that, I thought, well, you know, baptizing infants is just a, a holdover from Roman Catholicism. I automatically thought Catholics were wrong on this. And, you know, I was really wrong. I remember the day my father had passed away, but they had to call my mother and apologize for my reckless second baptism. I said, nope, mom, the first one took, okay? And if you think about it, we're talking about Jesus Christ, the tradition of the apostles, preserved by the early church fathers, and practiced by the entire church, east and west, until the Protestant Reformation. And even at the Protestant Reformation, it was only a break-off group from the Protestant Reformation that started insisting uh, uh, that infant baptism wasn't to be practiced. So you, you really hear, if you put it in historical perspective, it's, it's, it's a little break-off tributary from mainstream historic Christian teaching that in our day has taken on enormous uh, consequences, like here in Greenville. There's Baptist churches everywhere, it's, and they're good folks, but this is a big mistake to make. Now, I'm going to ask a question that many apologists, when they defend infant baptism, fail to ask, and it's this. Why do so many of your evangelical Protestant friends object to infant baptism? Okay? It's not enough to really do apologetics. Is you know, winning an argument is not apologetics, at least in my book. You want to build a bridge where you show in a reasonable fashion the truth in Scripture, in the Father's, uh, why what you're saying is absolutely true, and you want the person to cross over. So unless you can determine there are the course of, or I should say the course, the, the, the source 
of their objection, you're not going to have a bridge built. You're not going to win them over to the perspective of giving children the gift of Jesus in baptism. So here it is. Evangelical Protestants who reject infant baptism, and I'm talking about knowledgeable ones, and I'm talking about both pastors and laity, do so because they're afraid that if you baptize an infant, obviously the infant doesn't have faith at that point, doesn't have anything. Of course, that's kind of the picture of what it means to trust God by grace because it's the parent's faith. But they're afraid that the child will grow up with not ever having a faith awakening. I'm writing a new book on this, actually, the, the kind of the part two after infant baptism, because the child is to be brought to a faith awakening. And to be kind of honest, okay, if I got a few of my Protestant friends stepped on a toe, well, I'll step on Catholic toes for just a moment. Maybe we don't do as good enough a job as we should to bring children who have been baptized. We think, oh, no, they're just on a conveyor belt to heaven now. No, they need to be brought to that personal attachment to Christ that both St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI so emphasized, you have to have this faith awakening. And if Protestancy Catholics do a more focused job on bringing then older children and youth to the faith awakening, I think some of the objection to infant baptism would decline. Okay? Now, let's go on in Luke 18, and we read about the rich young ruler. Seems like a pretty good young man. He, he comes to Jesus, and he calls Jesus good teacher, and he's, and he's not trying to trip Jesus up or anything like that. And, uh, you know, he says, what, what do I do to inherit eternal life and keeping the commandments? And, and uh, this young man seemed to be doing a very good job, and, but Jesus says, one thing you lack— Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Ouch, those are pretty tough words if you're living in America. I was thinking about this this week several times. And, you know, when Jesus says poor in this verse, and I realize some folks in our country here in the United States of America, probably the wealthiest nation for more people in the entire history of the world, but even how we define poor, and I don't want to minimize uh, some of the struggles people are facing because you know very very basic needs like food and medicine are lacking. But you know if you're living in a home with air conditioning and a color TV and you have a car to drive, um, you are lower middle class because there wasn't a middle class. The poor that Jesus was talking about were really poor. And this rich young ruler um, walked away. And Jesus, looking, looking at him, and I'm sure it was a, a look of um, a penetrating look, but yet a sympathetic look, and he says, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And if you think you can live in America— I would assume in the wide middle class here in the United States, most of you listening would say it kind of fall into that category. Um, you know, we, we have that hard time to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's easier for a camel 
to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If you're middle class in the United States, you're rich if you would apply this verse to today's world. And, of course, the disciples heard it, and you might be sitting there at home hearing it, and me looking at this patches this week and think, wow, who can be saved if this is it? And Jesus says what is impossible with men is possible with God. And if we turn the page to uh, Luke 19, we find a, a rich guy, uh, a tax collector who was skimming it off the top, bottom, and middle, had lots of money, but yet broke his attachment to riches and made Jesus the number one thing in his life. And that's the point. Uh, what's number one? And it's very easy in the environment that we are all living in to become over-attached. And how would that apply uh, to a family? Well, uh, if you don't know it yet, uh, you will know it. The societal acceptance to homosexuality is becoming very widespread, especially with youth and young adults. The societal acceptance is there. And homosexuality has always been in the United States, but for most of our history, it was in the so-called closet. It wasn't um, paraded out in public, so to speak. And one of the reasons there were laws against it in order to keep it in the closet that once it's accepted widely in a society, it tends to spread rather quickly. And you know, in Sodom and Gomorrah, every single man was surrounding Lot's house, wanting to engage in relationships with his visitors. And one of the things you miss, like, what's the deal with Sodom and Gomorrah? Was that just kind of like a bad spot? And it's interesting, way back uh, in Genesis 19, God, this whole account of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, that's Genesis 19. But a good while before that, in Genesis 13, there was a conflict between Abraham and his nephew Lot. And their herds were growing, and they had a conflict. So Abraham very graciously gave the younger man, the less greater man, the option of where do you want to go? And it says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord. It was the Garden of Eden. And if the economy was agricultural, and if you had a Garden of Eden-type landscape with water and green lush vegetation and everything, you would become very rich and very prosperous. And so Lot took that area and it involved him moving in near and then eventually in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's interesting, and it wasn't just a lack of hospitality that caused God's judgment and all that. That's phony baloney stuff. But what is the root that would give rise to a proneness to such an extensive extent of homosexuality? And this is where the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 16 comes in. He says, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, a surfeit of food, and prosperous ease. In other words, like modern life. 
but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable, abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them. In other words, they couldn't handle prosperity. Their prosperity led to corruption. And now, okay, we've gone from Genesis to Ezekiel, and now I'm in a document entitled The Truth and Meaning of Human Sexuality, Guidelines for Education Within the Family, published by the Pontifical Council for the Family. And this is a document that is actually disappearing from Catholic bookstores, still on the internet. I would recommend downloading a copy and storing it on your computer. It may disappear because some folks don't like it. I love it. It's a great document. And here's what I'm driving at, and it's from Section 86. And everything I've been talking about as far as the rich young ruler, um, the riches, just basically freezing up his heart from making Jesus one. And then I'm showing you, again, from the Old Testament, how the riches enticed Lot. And and oh, even though Lot kept himself pure, his, his sons-in-law thought it was a big joke. God's going to come and judge? Come on. What are you talking about? And of course, you know, they didn't make it. Uh, and then Ezekiel putting his finger on it. Prosperous ease, lots of food. Um, they were haughty. And then they ended up doing abominable things. And here it is from the Truth and Meaning of Human Sexuality, section 86. During childhood, parents should encourage a spirit of self-denial in their children. An undisciplined or spoiled child is inclined to a certain immaturity and moral weakness in the future years because chastity is difficult to maintain if a person develops selfish or disordered habits. And again, that's section 86, and if you get that, somehow underline it or highlight it from the truth and meaning of human sexuality. Uh, it, it hit the rich young ruler. It hit Lot's family, even though he himself escaped. And Ezekiel puts a nail on that, prosperous ease, lots of food, pride, haughtiness, and then ended up abominable moral behavior. And that's exactly what's happening in our culture. If you want your children to escape it, pay attention to that section 86. And I just learned something that the word luxury, because we're talking about luxurious living here, and I'm not talking about the, the 1% in our economy. I'm talking about the middle class. We're living in luxury. Until the 14th century, the word luxury was a pejorative term. Its archaic meaning was lust. In other words, too much leads to sexual immorality. I urge you to pay a lot of attention to that. Okay. Now, we are in Luke 18, and we're talking about the blind man that was sitting there calling out Jesus, son of David, and uh, the people around him were starting to get on his case, saying, basically, shut up. And when they uh, told him to shut up, uh, he cried out all the louder. In other words, he took a really bold step that was um, uh, being urged on him not to take. Uh, 
And the key verse in this paragraph, I think, is Luke 18 and verse 37. It simply says, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. You know, there's somebody listening right now to this broadcast, and let's just say you kind of know everything about your faith, but you're not living it because, hey, I'm young. I have a lot of years before me. I'm in good health. No problem. I'm just going to you know, go about my life. My friends are pressing in with a little peer pressure saying, let's do this, let's do that. And you know it's not right, but hey, it's okay. Jesus is passing by, but you know, I have a lot of time to catch up with him. And you know, this blind man had the wisdom when Jesus was passing by and his friends were saying, shut up. He didn't shut up. He cried out all the much more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, you know, it's generally wise advice, and I've shared this with many people over the years, not to make major decisions in a hurry or when under lots of stress or when you're experiencing grief, but there are exceptions. And uh, (laughs) I'm one of them. Uh, I was a Protestant pastor. I had preached a sermon that basically was prompting me to leave my pastorate. I won't get into all the details. I've shared that before and other places. But in the course of one offertory hymn, I really sensed that Jesus was passing by. And even in my mind, I recalled the same advice I had given people. You don't make major decisions in a hurry. And this was my calling as a pastor, my job, my salary, my welfare of my family, and everything else. But I had a real certain sense that Jesus was saying, come now or never. And you know, the striking thing, uh, that was 29 years and one month ago. I do think I could still be sitting there today because sometimes in some situations, and you'll know it in the core of your being, Jesus is calling you to follow him and giving you a golden opportunity to do that. And as St. Augustine said regarding this passage, he says, I fear Jesus may pass by and not come back. There are certain opportunities that our Lord gives us and we don't put them off till later in life, till more convenient time, or till I graduate, or whatever. If Jesus is passing by, call out to him now. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 263 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.